Hello and welcome. I am John Garvey, Global Council's Practice Director for International Policy. This is the second episode in our new series of the Global Council Geopolitics podcast series, in which we aim to shine a light on the technical and technological tensions which underpin international policy debate. Today, we're going to focus on the geopolitics of international summits after a bumper week last week in which both the G7 and NATO met at leader level. Our central questions today are whether these summits really matter and will the many declarations of Western unity hold firm? I'm delighted to be joined today by Tiffany McDonald, who is a GC senior advisor and has 20 years experience working as an Australian diplomat, primarily focused on geopolitics in Asia and trade policy. And in this conversation, as well as the G7, NATO and BRICS, we'll be getting into Russia, Ukraine, China and the future of the UK's Indo-Pacific tilt. For disclosure purposes, I should say that I'm also a former UK diplomat and civil servant, and between us, we've probably worked on far more summits than we care to remember. So, what are summits for? Um, We're calling this episode the geopolitics of summits, which in a sense sounds obvious. Summits are, after all, gatherings of world leaders. By definition, they discuss the global issues of the day. But I want to begin our discussion today by testing that theory and asking whether these summits and the international organizations which sit behind them really make a difference. When you're working within government, you spend days and weeks obsessing over each paragraph of the final leader's communique, which is often negotiated far in advance. Each line takes on tremendous importance. Square brackets are placed around contentious text. Hours get spent laboring over negotiations on how to find a compromise. But the truth is that few people outside of that circle of politicians and advisors read these conclusions. And as with recent summits, while leaders make loud noises about unity, it's often pretty hard to figure out exactly what has been delivered and what will happen next. If you're a realist in foreign policy terms, the explanation for that lack of content is that international institutions simply don't work that well. They lack legitimacy, they lack delivery mechanisms, and they're often blocked by opposed national interests. That's been true more often than not since the so-called Bretton Woods institutions were established in the wake of the Second World War. But the more optimistic case, which many of the G7 leaders have been making vigorously, is that in the face of Russian aggression, the West has never been more united. So, Tiffany, welcome again. How does this look from your perspective? Are you an optimist, realist, skeptic? Well... Thank you, John. Firstly, can I say thank you very much for the introduction and that I'm delighted to be here talking about these issues with you. And while I bring 20 years of diplomatic experience, I just want to reiterate that the views I'll express today are entirely my own. I, I, I'm a realist, John, um, but I'm, I'm an optimist, um, mostly. Um, and I'd make the case that these, these international summits are an extremely important aspect of international relations and bilateral relations. These are where the conversations that shape the direction of bilateral, plurilateral and multilateral engagements take place. Uh, it's where the political frameworks that guide future work plans are shaped. If you're a bureaucrat locked in those rooms negotiating for hours on end over uh, particular phrases or terminology or positions, as you and I both know uh, all too well, it sometimes requires that uh, political level impetus uh, at the at the end of the negotiations to really get get things over the 
over the line. Uh, I'm thinking of examples like the global financial crisis and the the G20 uh, was used to get the leaders of the the world's largest uh, economies together. In in those leaders led by uh, UK's Prime Minister Gordon Brown, Australia's then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, they were in a room forging relationships, rolling up their sleeves and really nutting out uh, a response that was shaping shaping the way that the the the, the global community responded to, to that crisis so I think that um while a great deal of those these summits is choreographed you know who stands where who sits where who says what when um, uh, talking points are, are scripted and some of the uh, interactions uh, around plenary rooms are quite staged but there are in the in the crevices of, all of that choreography, real personal relationships formed and 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 perspectives shared, and those summits they matter, uh, and those relationships matter, uh, and it does have impact and does lead when it works greater collaboration between the countries, uh, whether it's um across traditional negotiating lines or, or understanding the perspectives of countries that there may not be as shared like like-mindedness um, we can drill down in, into that in into into more detail as we as we chat but I think that, that the initial thought that that summits do matter uh, leaders engaging together face to face genuinely matters and has impact uh, is something that I, I, I am very optimistic and great well it's it it is good to hear the optimistic case um, some of our audience might have noticed that some of the choreography around the G7 summit in particular looked I mean I'd, I'd say it just looked a little bit naff so first we had we had all G7 leaders all of whom are men this time sort of very obviously making this decision to take off their ties and stand as leaders often do with arms around each other's shoulders in this in this proclamation of unity and more more importantly there's an interesting choice of location um because this this summit took place in the bavarian alps with a dying glacier behind it which um given that many of climate commitments that came out of this summit were uh, certainly seen by certainly seen by the NGO community as a step back from previous commitments. Possibly, possibly wasn't the best backdrop. But just to pick up on a couple of your points, I mean, you talked about personal relationships mattering. Can you can you think of other instances over the last um, 10, 20 years where? relationships forged in these kind of summits have really advanced a particular position or forged a new alliance? So we touched on this uh, before, John, the relationship between uh, then UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown and Australia's then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd uh, had a very strong working relationship and, and had impact in that the, the G20 space in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. But the other examples uh, perhaps tending in a, uh, a direction that was um, 
less expected uh, was then um, Prime Minister Tony Blair with the US President George W. Bush. Also, from an Asia-Pacific perspective, we had in Australia a Prime Minister, uh, Labor Prime Minister Paul Keating, who worked very closely to establish a relationship with the Indonesian president at the time, Suharto. Very different perspectives, but that relationship, as surprising as it may have seemed uh, to commentators at the time, led to the genesis of APEC, uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Community, which is now will be more familiar to our listeners as the, the framework around which the the, tra- the free trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as it was uh, under Obama's time, but now the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so these are relationships that were formed and, and um, nurtured uh, decades ago that are still having impact on the way that countries are engaging and, and interacting and, and ordering themselves. So yeah, it, it, does, it does matter and it can, it can have a profound impact, not just bilaterally, but more broadly, either regionally or as we saw um, in response to EG, the, the G20, that's a, that was a global solution crafted through relationships. It, it's true, and it's it's interesting how personalised um, some of these successes or failures can be. Uh, I, I was around at the time of that G20 summit in 2009, and um, Gordon Brown famously locked all the other global leaders into a room and said, no one's coming out until we get a sufficient, uh, sufficient number for the overall stimulus package out of this. Um, and it worked broadly. I think it's it's interesting to look at this G7 summit through that kind of light because the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was facing a lot of domestic criticism at home for not having done enough on Ukraine, for his leadership essentially being a little bit lackluster. And you saw at the press conference um, at the end of the summit, uh, President Biden was caught on camera sort of saying to Schultz, you've done an incredibly good job here. And Schultz, unusually for him, was sort of beaming, beaming into beaming into the cameras in, in front of him. Um, mm. And I, th- I think there was a case here of, well, as Biden put it himself, the G7 showing a surprising amount of unity, giving, given everything that we'd heard before about Europe splintering away from the US and the UK position, it was actually, it was actually to give them credit, it was actually a very coherent, cohesive set of statements on Russia and China, at least. But the other thing I wanted to focus on a little bit in this section was just on the extent to which leaders are also playing to their domestic audiences, or perhaps to put it differently, can't escape from their domestic audiences, even when they're in these cozy alpine retreats. I just wondered, Tiffany, what your reflections were on that, both from these summits and your broader experience, how much how much is international politics actually always a domestic game? Oh, it's such a good point, John, because I think my observation has been that all politics is essentially domestic politics. So the the in it this sort of goes to the importance of these international summits in a way too, because there is a there's that tension between how a country wants to be a uh, viewed and uh, acknowledged on the international stage, but how 
how that country can sort of navigate that country's representative uh, leader can can navigate the domestic the domestic politics and i think this is sometimes where the leverage for the international uh community comes in for example i'm just uh thinking back to the most recent uh, world trade organization meeting that took place um in geneva another another uh, it wasn't a summit but another international meeting that took place in person in june very important and 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 consequential meeting delivering the geneva package but the uk was the the last country holding holding back on agreement for a particular agreement around the intellectual property rights and it's a very uncomfortable position for a country to be in. Think back to my own country, Australia, and the the Glasgow Climate Conference, and the then Prime Minister um, uh, Scott Morrison being under incredible pressure internationally uh, to 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 deliver um, commitments around uh, phasing out of coal, uh, and then the 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 push and pull factor of the domestic politics and the the way that played out on the international stage can be very different to the way it plays out in 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 the domestic um, political landscape. So, on the whole, leaders don't want to be seen in that uncomfortable spot of being ostracised, but they certainly need to be able to deliver a package that when they return home after their engage, set of engagements overseas, that they it will play it will play to their into their domestic constituency. What do you think, John? Have you seen that? Definitely. And I think, I mean, you see, you see the physical manifestation of it at these summits, as, as I was saying before, you know, particularly with this British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, he having, having faced, uh, faced accusations that the UK is internationally isolated, having contravened international law and so on through the Northern Ireland Protocol, Boris Johnson was absolutely at pains to literally put his arms around President Macron, put his arms around Biden, affirming the special relationship as we always try to do. Um, and to some extent, you you can almost feel sorry for leaders when they have been locked in these rooms that we've been talking about and they spend eight hours talking about um armaments being shipped to Ukraine and then they come out of they come out of that room and they face the press ball and the first question they're asked is about some sort of tawdry domestic sex scandal at home um so I I think there is a point of they can never really escape uh their domestic contexts moving on we have talked before um both you and I and also um much more broadly at GC about whether what we're seeing at G7, G20, NATO summits looks like some sort of increasing split between democracies and autocracies. Obviously, there was the there was the Joe Biden um, summit of democracies that was originally held last year, and he's continued uh, he's continued to push that concept. One of one of the things that I think has been very interesting about both the G7 and NATO summits this week is that they've both taken in um, countries from outside of their respective clubs. So G7 countries were joined um, by the leaders of Argentina, India, Indonesia, South Africa and Senegal, as well as uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky by video link. And then um, at the NATO summit, perhaps even more interestingly, we also had uh, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand and Australia. Uh, as well as Finland and Sweden, who are applying to join, of course. So 
we can see what the intent is there. In both cases, they're trying to uh, demonstrate that there's a broader Western alliance. How do you how do you see this democracies versus autocracies uh, split, Tiffany? Is that a useful way for the West to be framing? Yeah, right. Uh, it's a really, really interesting question. I think it's um, I think that as as countries try to navigate their um, positions globally and as we uh, collectively try to navigate solutions to problems uh, that are far bigger than any one country, then there does need to be these various these various groupings um, that and and it's it's not unusual that these various groupings form because ultimately uh, international relations and diplomacy is about engaging uh, with other countries to to shape uh, influence perspectives and to maintain uh, peaceful conditions so that countries can prosper um, I think it's it's interesting to, to think of these as sort of clubs, uh, and I and when I, I think about that in more detail, I think well you, you can be members of more than more than one club. There's not an exclusivity clause um, in one club over the other, um, and also when you're you're looking at, at um, if forming clubs and and having the impact and a, a good uh, set of uh, conversations at those clubs, you want you want people. Uh, countries uh, represented from the variety of perspectives. So I think it makes sense that you would have uh, NATO inviting the US's um, allies from the Indo-Pacific uh, to to there. Uh, it's not a it's not a coincidence that uh, the Indo-Pacific uh, was um, referenced so strongly in the um, in the public statements that came out uh, from the NATO. Summit, and we can talk about that in more detail and what it means. Um, but I also just want to touch on before we go there on the fact that in in addition to the G the G seven, you had you had the BRICS of Brazil, Russia, India, and South Africa meeting almost in tandem. Uh, we also had the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which brings in you know more than fifty countries from around the world. South Africa and India are both members of the Commonwealth, as is is Australia. So you had that that Heads of Government meeting in Rwanda on the twenty fourth and twenty fifth of June. You've got all these meetings taking place with an opportunity to exchange. Uh, perspectives. I think the the idea that you have India and South Africa at the G7, at BRICS, at the the Chogham, the Commonwealth Head of Government meeting, all all trying to grapple with some of the big the big issues. Uh, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine came up uh, and was dealt with uh, very squarely in the context of the G7 um, and, and NATO. The differentiating feature, obviously, about how the BRICS dealt with that is something that I think we should drill in to in, in more detail. But the, to answer your, your broad question about these various clubs, I think it's important that the, the clubs remain open to engagement uh, with other countries and that we don't set up a, a system. I don't think it's in any, any country's longer-term interest to set up a system where these are exclusive clubs and there are two sets of, of parallel clubs 
running uh, with a very different uh, objective and worldview. Because remember, all of this is anchored back into our post-World War II uh, institutions and arrangements, the, the rules-based order that generated um, off the back of the, the, the global crisis at the, at the World War II was. And, and we've seen we've seen countries such as China and its accession to the, the World Trade Organization prosper as a result of the engagement in the multilateral system. So I think that, um, there's, a, there's a concerning trend towards bifurcation, which I'm sure we'll, we'll drill into in more detail, but the, the general notion of making, making sure that these groupings uh, remain um, to an extent, open to engagement with a variety of perspectives is in a broader is in the broader global interest. So, so I agree with you wholeheartedly about the broader global interest. I think where I'd like to just push a bit is on the bifurcation point because it does feel to me like there are there are a series, possibly not two, but a series of rival clubs developing, which are trying to entice members and Western countries broadly framed or, or, or possibly better to say advanced industrial economies are desperate for this not to just evolve into an apparent display of these countries, West, West plus, you know, Japan, Australia, South Korea against the global South. So it's really important for them optically to have to have that broader array of countries and particularly countries like India and South Africa, which which are economically very closely tied to China. It's really important for them to have those countries at these summits. But my question is just apart from attendance and apart from, you know, we have seen we have seen things like just energy partnerships evolve at, uh, at the G7. But I think there isn't actually that much substance to those relationships. And I, my sense, and I think y- you, might, you might have a better sense of this than me, but my sense is that countries like India are really hedging their bets. They definitely don't want to commit to what they see as a Western alliance against, um, against Russia and against China. But they also want to stay as close as they can within those parameters to the US particularly. How do you see that playing out? Do you think, um, do you think that these countries are hedging or do you think the West is actually making its case a bit more effectively? I think that the underlying principle for the way that the the global order has been managed is this respect of sovereignty uh, and this idea that countries need to make their own decisions within the context of the international rules-based order based on their their national interests. Obviously, we've seen the the violation of that in the gravest kind with uh, Russia's invasion of a sovereign country, Ukraine. But if I can sort of zoom zoom back out to a, a perspective more from the from Asia, I think that you know we we are seeing this strategic competition playing out where there are two models in a way being presented. But countries don't want to choose. They don't want to be smaller countries that don't have the ability to to force their national interests, whether it's militarily or economically, don't want to be forced into a into a, a choice between two 
two options. They don't want to take sides with with the US nor nor with China. And that's where the strategic competition is really, the fault lines are really starting to to, to emerge. Uh, I think that they want the maneuverability. They want to be engaging uh, with the with the with the G seven or other organizations but then have the maneuverability to be able to to share their perspective and shape shape discussions um in the in the BRICS. so i think that there's a real risk to the interests of those smaller countries um well mostly most countries to be to be frank apart from say the p5 that that, that they are put in a situation where they feel compelled to choose. So having having these various groupings and having the opportunity to engage, whether it's in substance or just in attendance, that in a way that makes less of a, a, a difference. It's about being able to be engaged uh, and to continue to engage and not not having clearly defined lines between one side or the other. I wanted to I wanted to move us on um, a bit onto the details of the NATO summit itself um, and just test a couple of thoughts with you. So I think there are three big headlines that came out of um, came out of the NATO summit, none of which were unexpected, but all of which were important. So the first is um, Finnish and Swedish accession. So Turkey has effectively dropped its block on their accession. Um, all 30 NATO countries will still have to uh, sign and ratify the agreement, but we'd expect that to go through uh, probably by the end of this year. Secondly, um, there's a huge increase of troops on NATO's eastern border. So moving from 40,000 person rapid deployment force up to 300,000 rapid deployment force. Um, And that is far and away the the biggest expansion um, since the end of the Cold War. And then finally, um, NATO has also agreed a new 10-year strategy or so-called strategic concept i wanted to i wanted to ask your opinion on a couple of things that are outside those three obvious headlines so the communique also mentions china explicitly for the first time um but the effect of the effect of the war in ukraine has obviously been that nato's attention is much more concentrated certainly at at the present time on Russia, on Europe's borders. Where do you see NATO's Indo-Pacific tilt as a result of uh, what we've seen over the past few weeks? Do you think it's been interrupted or do you think we're seeing something more permanent in terms of Europe perhaps turning away? It's really interesting to me, John, to have seen the the NATO... uh, communicate refer to uh, the Indo-Pacific in this idea I guess also that it referred to China uh, for the first time 
um, and its stated ambitions being a, and coercive policies being seen as a challenge to to NATO's interests. Um, on the on the first point around the the Indo-Pacific, I think the, this idea that Russia and China are, are developing a strategic partnership, we know, you know the um, the friends with uh, the the friendship without limits, uh, sort of declared just moments before Putin's invasion of of Ukraine. It, its connection between Russia and China and what the ambitions of Putin mean for for China and its its trajectory under Xi Jinping, which is of course causing concern and and not just causing concern in the Euro Atlantic area, uh, but causing concern in the Indo Pacific and that that draw through of what uh, the war in Ukraine means for calculations uh, in China around its ambitions. In the Indo-Pacific, Taiwan is the obvious, obvious first point of focus. But it's, it's, it's in my view, it's broader than that. So I think that what it means is that we've seen identified at the highest levels that there is a, a concern and a connectedness between the security situation that we're seeing play out in Europe and the Indo-Pacific and what happens there. And to, to use a very sort of well, well-used phrase, this idea that there's going to need to be a, a walking and chewing gum at the same time and looking and investing in, in security issues in, in, in Europe, um, whilst at the same time keeping a very close eye and, and increased engagement in, in the Indo-Pacific. I think it'll. It, I think the idea that that NATO has identified the Indo-Pacific as a an area of of strategic importance, it, it will, to an extent, provide some reassurance to US um, and and NATO partners in in the Indo-Pacific region. It's not an accident that you had. Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and the Republic of Korea. There, they, they are clearly described as Indo-Pacific partners, and and they all have a very, very strong stake in peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific and and alliances with the US. I think that it will cause potentially some strong pushback uh, by China, that will in turn make a number of countries in the Indo-Pacific region feel uncomfortable about the idea of again that idea of having to having to choose but i think that the the, the takeaway for me is very much around that that direct line uh, being drawn between the security situation in in europe and the what what it means for security and stability in the indo-pacific and the very clear signaling that nato nato is acknowledging that and watching it and and i think the the resourcing um point will follow the resourcing is of course zero sum though isn't it and if you think about the long history of the U.S. calling on um, the U.S. calling on its European allies in NATO to up their defence spending, and famously, very few European countries spending more than more than the target of two percent of GDP on defence, that is changing. Most obviously um, with Germany. But European countries are going to direct their resources. They will have to direct their resources in order to to manage this sort of huge 
uplift of troops and also to protect this new 700 kilometer border that NATO will have through Finland's accession with Russia, they are going to have to surely direct um, the vast majority of their resources there. So it's why for me, listening to the UK Foreign Secretary Liz Trust, I think said, you know, that China should draw a lesson from how the world has come together uh, against Russia following the Ukraine invasion. Yes, but you wonder, really, can NATO walk and chew gum at the same time? I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you're saying about the sort of feeling of unease that various countries in the ASEAN region might have. You know, in Australia, in, in South Korea and so on, is there not some sort of fear about NATO's attention being distracted from China's threat. Yeah, that's a really good, uh, good reflection, John. Uh, I think that the um, there was fear, and, and this is more in relation to the US rather than NATO more broadly. But there was definitely uh, uh, jitters uh, sent through the region uh, when the US under uh, former President Trump uh, appeared to be retreating back from whether it was a reality or not. It was about the appearance of, of this being so, you know, um, uh, retreating back from the Indo-Pacific and the America, what America first and, and make America great again and what that meant uh, for the US's commitment to the Indo-Pacific region. And the idea that, you know, that you would knit together something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership under then-President Obama, which was the economic leg to, a, in my view, a much broader strategy, and then to, to quickly pull back from it. That, that, that caused a degree of concern. But I think that um, the, the other point I wanted to, to, to pick up, um, the resourcing piece that I think is important to be considered not just through the lens of military resources and allocations, but... We need to look at what NATO and, and others are investing in the Indo-Pacific region through other through other avenues. You know, there's the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, um, or the Global Alliance on Food Security. Both both were um, uh, outcomes of the of the G7, which saw some really solid solid numbers put put behind them. So the, the, there will be questions about military resources and, and, and very much questions about how um, members in the Indo-Pacific view um, any increase in spending in military resourcing in, in countries in the Indo-Pacific. But to the point of manoeuvrability and, and giving countries choices uh, and supporting supporting countries in their ability to to grow, prosper, and defend their own national interests, uh, these investments around infrastructure, food security, and the like, uh, adaptation and mitigation to climate change, these are all really important planks to 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 the the sort of labyrinth of engagements um, that will be necessary to making. Uh, countries in the Indo-Pacific feel more uh, reassured. It, it's a really good point for our audience as well to consider that it's not, it, it isn't all doom and gloom in terms of uh, bifurcation between uh, the West and the rest or however we frame it, because as well as the diplomatic pressure and all of uh, the security pressure that is going on in Russia, Ukraine, we are, as you say, seeing a great degree of economic investment um 
particularly in the Indo-Pacific. Now, a lot of that investment, you mentioned the um, uh, Global Partnership on Infrastructure Investment. A lot of that has been framed in terms of countering uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. So it is, it is in a sense... Um, it is, in a sense, an attempt to construct a kind of alternative system or an alternative route. But unlike um, unlike the military conflicts or potential conflicts we've been describing, it, it's not zero sum in the same way because these countries are seeing, in in some way, a sort of uh, productive um, race for FDI. The the one thing I did with with my skeptics hat on want to pick out on on that partnership for infrastructure investment is that while both the UK and the US said, you know, this is this is really one of the great deliverables of the summit. And I think the headline figure was this is going to be an additional six hundred billion dollars mobilized of public and private finance. Um over the next five years, basically what they seem to have done is to have repackaged or rebranded the initiatives that were announced last year. So it was at uh, the G7 in Cornwall last year under the UK presidency that the UK uh, announced that, sorry, the US announced their Build Back Better World initiative. Then we had the EU announce the Global Gateway initiative, which was essentially a mirror initiative later last year. And if you add those two things up, they come to more or less $600 billion. Though I think it is still extremely unclear quite how much new public money is going to be spent on either of those uh, on either of those or within the whole initiative because an awful lot of this still uh, rests on the idea that um, that the governments will be will be able to unlock private sector financing through increasing their contributions to multilateral development banks and development finance institutions through changing some of their lending rules and so on. And yeah, as I say, with my skeptics hat on, I just think the proof of the pudding is taking an awfully long time to emerge. I do wonder again, with you know, my... <laughs> go on, Sorry, give me, give me, going. give me, give me the optimist case for this. Yeah, with the optimist view, um, just to counter that, that rim, rim assessment, John, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes this is how things happen. The, the, um, the headline is announced and it's, it's been announced with really strong political backing and it takes the ministers or leaders to, to, to be able to make those announcements and then bureaucrats have to go away and and work through how how it's going to work but they've got the, I think the the optimist in me says well this signals you know the the private sector needs um, to see uh, what what has been politically committed to if it draws uh, if it draws previous previous um, previous funding under one one umbrella then and then there's agreement to work together um, across across a number of countries for the the partnership and that the underpinnings of that um, investment uh, or partnership are, are clearly around transparency uh, uh, rule of law openness and all the things that I'm sure um, will will be the, the framing principles for the for the partnership. Those those are all positive signals, um, and it's um it's 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 not. I think that that 
there would be as a, a case to make that this is not an either either or. It's not um, uh, either Belt and Road Initiative funding or partnership for global infrastructure investment funding, but that the, the infrastructure spend and the infrastructure need um, is is enormous. And we know that investment um, needs some of those signals from the the public um, the public sector and from governments to help help unlock um, the enormous the enormous need yeah, um, that I, exists. I think I think this is one important point for our audience that we, we have we have actually kept reassuringly returning to that it's not so from an economic perspective, these summits aren't zero sum um, and some of the investment that we're talking about does potentially demonstrate new ways of cooperation in the future. The, the one other positive thing, actually, that I wanted to say both about um, the infrastructure initiative and um, the Global Alliance on Food Security, which you mentioned earlier, is that both actually have a number against them, which is very important. So 600 billion on the infrastructure, uh, four and a half billion on the Food Security Initiative, which was a big personal victory for Schultz. The other thing that I think makes the Food Security Initiative particularly important is that there is actually a, a transmission mechanism it's going to be delivered through the world bank that will mean um that will mean g7 countries stumping up through their contributions to the bank to actually raise that money and that's one of the things um when i said at the start these summits often lack delivery mechanisms it's when you see the actual mechanism attached to the number that I think um, our audience should sort of take a bit more note and think these things these things are slightly more liable to happen. Mm, I yeah, I just I, I wanted to finish. We we started we started with this image of um, the dying glacier under which the G seven leaders were uh, making their pledges. I mean, one one big story of. The summit, or the summits, actually, because NATO has also said that it's going to concentrate a lot more on climate security. But one of the big stories was um, the climate club that uh, Olaf Scholz also managed to secure agreement on at the G7. And this is basically uh, agreement that G7 countries should try and broaden out carbon border adjustment mechanisms, i.e. the... Uh, potential taxes on carbon intensive industries or products coming from outside their jurisdictions so you don't get into you don't get into some sort of downward spiral um but also the thing undercutting that was this exemption clause for um further gas exploration and for further financing for international financing for fossil fuels whilst this energy crisis persists and this to me just does seem another very important sort of element of zero-sum politics that crudely put the demands of um fighting and financing the war against russia and dealing um dealing with the energy squeeze as a result are going to fundamentally constrain the west's climate ambitions and of course germany actually said that it was going to uh recommence coal production as did a couple of other european countries in the immediate period before this summit so i just i just wanted to ask you that in to to sort of summarize do you think that 
we are seeing a fundamental dampening of climate ambitions as a result of what's going on in Russia? Look, it's really difficult, isn't it? And I was just thinking that if we think back to the G7 in Cornwall last year uh, and then to even to the Glasgow COP uh, at the end of last year, how significantly this debate uh, has changed as a result of Russia's invasion in the Ukraine. Uh, but I think uh, that there is uh, there's, there's certainly a, a, a broad in acceptance of the need to accelerate investments towards renewables and that if you if you think i think if you even just zoom zoom out and look at the um the level of ambition and the level of uptake in renewables even just sort of five or seven years ago uh, whilst of course we're not we're not there yet and the idea that you could have a, 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 an economy the size of Germany's talking about uh, opening new coal just seemed unthinkable even even months ago uh, let alone um, now is um it, it, it does give you the basis for feeling a bit uh, of a um, I guess a, a dampened um, level of enthusiasm around the renewables agenda but I I spend a lot of time looking at this issue both um, uh, from a um, geopolitical and energy perspective it, it, it's demonstrated um, a, a sharing of, of interest in, in uh, removing reliance on, on Russia and its energy source, but also accelerating investment uh, into, into renewables. You're seeing enormous money uh, and time and effort go into hydrogen, for example. Uh, the, the Australian government has released a, a, a hydrogen strategy. Uh, Australia, I would say this, um, given my country of origin, but there's so much opportunity and, and optimism about how um, how we are going to capture, um, how the world is going to capture the renewables opportunity and, and the, the Russia piece, whilst in the immediate short term, has um, made conversations around the use of fossil fuel um, in the in the immediate um, uh, short term seem um, possible. Uh, the investments in the trajectory towards renew, um, renewables, uh, I think, is has is, is got a, a increased impetus. And then I also think this point of, of NATO, for example, and, and the broad recognition of climate change being a security issue, that you know, not that 10, 10 or so years ago, it was difficult to find uh, comments along those lines being said in the public in the public domain. But now it's an ex. We know it's an existential threat, uh, particularly uh, for example in the Pacific and the low low lying states. There we know we know that climate change is is happening and that it's having um, extreme impact and that it's something that. Um, requires global global solutions even if we're in the immediate term looking at the energy supplies um, that have been disrupted due to Russia's invasion in Ukraine. So this is this has been an incredibly wide-ranging and productive conversation. I think to answer my original rhetorical question, I think we sort of jointly arrived at the conclusion that actually these summits do matter and they are the sorts of things that our audience should be 
following very closely, both um, to see the sort of personal chemistry and changing relationships that we've described, and because the headline announcements, even when there isn't necessarily a great deal of detail beneath them, the headline announcements do set an important trajectory for the next few years. The the other thing that I'm taking away from this conversation that I, I think it's important for our audience to bear in mind is that while we are undoubtedly seeing a process of decoupling between the West and Russia and the West and China, um, there are also increased efforts across advanced industrial economies to effectively entice um, economies in the global south and economies in the Indo-Pacific region more into more into the other clubs that we've been describing. And that will continue to trigger the sort of competitive uh, investment and competitive um, calls for calls for cooperation that we have seen over the last few months. So it's not all zero sum as it sometimes appears. Tiffany, do you have any do you have any final thoughts? No, I agree. I think if we're looking at um, the the glimmers of, of hope uh, in an otherwise fairly uh, cloudy um, outlook, this idea that uh, multilateralism uh, and engagement, um, outward outward looking engagement, uh, is is required and underpins uh, domestic uh, countries' ability to respond to these issues that do go beyond borders. I think there is obviously very different approaches emerging as to what that means um, for each country. Um, But I think that there is... there is a glimmer of uh, of hope that countries are committed to finding global solutions uh, to global problems. Uh, and even when I look at the language that NATO used around uh, China, uh, it said that the NATO remained open to constructive engagement with China. So I think there are there are positive positive signals there in a really disrupted, contested, challenging time. Constructive engagement and positive signals are a great note to end on. So as always, Tiffany, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much. Um, As always, if you, our audience, have any questions about any of the issues that we've discussed, you would like to know more about summits and how we can help you decode them, please don't hesitate to get in touch.